1: Hello and welcome back to The Midpoint. This week, I'm welcoming best-selling author, podcaster and former editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan L and Sunday Times style, Lorraine Candy. Lorraine has carved out a very impressive career as a journalist, starting at her local newspaper when she was just 17 and going on to write features for some of the UK's biggest publications. After being appointed editor-in-chief at Cosmo, she never looked back and many awards and prestigious postings have followed and Lorraine has done all of this alongside being a mum of four. Her debut book, Mum, What's Wrong With You, 101 Things Only the Mothers of Teenage Girls Know, harvested a lot of hard-earned wisdom from her experience as a mum. And similarly, her new book, What's Wrong With Me, 101 Things Midlife Women Need to Know, draws on what she's learned about the menopause, often the hard way, as well as what she's learned through her podcast, Postcards from Midlife. And we're also going to chat to entrepreneur and life coach Ed Haddon. He aims to help people discover their purpose in life and unlock their potential. So I'm really interested to hear his thoughts on coach as a tool in midlife but first off let's meet Lorraine. Lorraine Candy it is about time (laughs) we had you on the midpoint Uh, thank you so much for coming on today how are you? Oh
2: I'm brilliant thank you so much for having me yeah I know we had you on our podcast and you were absolutely fantastic and very very useful and helpful so I hope I can be
1: too. That's not always said about me, so <laughs> being useful is, I mean, you know you're useful, don't you, around the house, you kind of know that these people that you live with couldn't really do it without you, but they don't always relay that back to you. No, do they? they
2: often use the word useless instead, um, <laughs> or they say what's wrong with you uh, every time you use the wrong words for things, or you forget what the
1: remote control is called and things like that. Um, which is the title, Oh, it's a, a version of that, the title of your new book, What's Wrong With Me? But we'll get on to that in just a moment. Anybody listening to this who um, has read any kind of magazine or newspaper in the last 30 years will probably have come across you, Lorraine Candy, in terms of the volume of work that you've done and the, the kinds of magazines and newspapers you've worked for. I'm sure the, the Midpoint audience have, have been there. Uh, but things changed for you professionally around the time that things were changing for you as a woman. And, uh, you know, there were a lot, of, a lot of big changes kind of happening all at once. Yes,
2: I guess we're talking about my sort of mid to late 40s and early 50s when I'd sort of had a 30 year career. I'd started very early, left school at 16, worked as a journalist and edited magazines, worked on newspapers and had four children and got married, done all the Gen X uh, women things. But um, I started to kind of unravel I guess you would say, when I was in my uh, late 40s. And it was really unexpected. It was a complete surprise. It was a physical and emotional unraveling. And, you know, lots of things are going on, aren't they? In the midpoint, as as you often mm. say, your children are getting older, they're teenagers, they're about to leave home. Um, your work circumstances are beginning to change because careers change and everything changes at that stage. And it sort of coincided with what, in retrospect, I found out was the... Um, perimenopause, which I... I mean, you know, I've edited these big magazines and done all this journalism on health and women's health and this thing was just a complete surprise and it ambushed me. And I think I felt I had to write about that because of the the kind of generic women that had been around me. You know, I've been writing for them for so long since I edited Cosmo and telling them all these things and doing all these campaigns about date break drugs, about feminism, about women's rights. And yet at no point had anyone told me... I'd I'd noticed or found or asked that this thing was coming at me and it just felt very unfair not to share it. So as you do as well on this podcast, I just felt we had to share it for the generation behind us. And I was a
1: little bit cross the generation in front of us hadn't mentioned it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's wind back to that because you mentioned Cosmopolitan magazine. And its kind of uber editor, Marcel Darje Smith, uh, back in the day was very famous for um, wanting to write about women's sex lives. And this was seen as enormously liberating. I think I was a teenager when she was at the helm. And I, I remember when I was at university, I wrote off and won a competition to be a student ambassador for Cosmopolitan magazine and it seemed like this mm. really incredibly glamorous place where women's issues were going to be at the forefront but as you say <laughs> up to a point yeah. there was a there was a there was a line in the sand that seemed to have been drawn an imaginary line in the sand across all magazines and all Uh, outlets because I'm sure in the other places you you worked this was not something that was uh, top of the agenda it wasn't top of the agenda on the
2: Sunday Times when I was there three years ago launching a podcast about it so it's kind of you know it's 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 this thing that women seem to be ashamed of and this I mean dare I say patriarchal attitude to us not being worth as much as we age and then there are no role models, so we start to feel invisible, and we're just that we're just not there in society anymore. But thankfully, we are, we are a bit more now. But it was something that just you know it wasn't going to sell magazines talking about the menopause, perimenopause. It, it it wasn't women didn't want to read it, men didn't want to read it, and we were kind of working. Also, you know, sex and power is how you get attention, isn't it? In um, you know in publishing, that those stories get attention, those stories sell. It just wasn't talked about because it was affecting the power structure and the, <laughs>
0: you
2: know if you're going to talk about sex you have to talk about younger women and sex you have to talk about sexuality within a relationship and you know I think as a generation as well Gen X we had such ridiculous stuff happening and you know we had the Ladek culture we'd grown up in the 70s with Benny Hill you know we were still a, a generation where nurses outfits were Halloween outfits I mean how ridiculous is that There was so much coming at us and we were working within a system which was set up predominantly by men which didn't really work for us so we were trying to fit in in a place that didn't work and you know in a way I look back and think well I should have been more questioning I should have thought that through a bit more and you know asked about the women ahead of us but then you know I've interviewed women in their 60s for the book you know women like Ruby Wax who said to me do you know it's like childbirth isn't it if someone says it's incredibly painful and they tell you the absolute details of it you still go ahead and do it. So it's, you know, perhaps we wouldn't have listened anyway, but it's been so fascinating unpicking all of this for this generation. And I'm just really hopeful that the next generation, you know, there are, you know, stuff is more important to them and they get the information they need. I mean, I work with Helen Gurley Brown, who set up Cosmopolitan and globally, wherever it launched from the late sixties onwards, it was number one in every single market. There was such a thirst for it. And her belief was you had to have your own financial independence. You had to have your sexual independence independence but it was still quite a man-pleasing tone (laughs) as long as you worked within this societal structure you could be independent but also you know she was all about women being able to work outside of the home but there were all these conflicting messages about what you should look like and what you should weigh and
1: Mm. you know
2: which it it was fascinating to go back and look at all of that.
1: It's almost with with hindsight it was like a a slight bending of the glass, but not quite smashing it, you know, trying to kind of make the glass move in some way, but you know you had to do it within a as you say, the confines of a patriarchal society and try and do it in a way that you took people with you and and those that didn't perhaps didn't have the easiest ride, no, did they but, yeah. they weren't they weren't necessarily <laughs> no. able to well you, you say know, it you know it was through. that
2: we were sold, and it's a, you know we are quite a sort of endurance based focused generation. we were sold this have it all you can have it all Miss. In mm. fact, that was Helen's uh, catchphrase. And you can't have it all. And we, we decided that that actually also meant you could do it all. And even, you know, as we progressed through the decades and men were more behind us and, and more you know, in, into the equality in the home sphere, even now, most of the surveys that come out around the emotional labour and the domestic labour, it's all done by women. So, you know, we found that out with COVID, didn't we? During the pandemic, you know, women were working from home and homeschooling and home running, and they were still doing the lists for you know you can have, a lot of women were saying we have the most equal relationship in the whole world. So I, I do a list of what I want my male partner to do during the day. Where in, there's no intrinsic thinking of it being equal. We had um, an anthropologist Lucy Cook on on our podcast, and she wrote Bitch, which is a book about animals, female animals, and in, in in the wild And she looked at all the surveys and all the science, and there is no maternal instinct. So this is a myth. <laughs> <laughs> but we're still, we were still buying into it, you know. Even you know, so no,
1: in the animal kingdom, nobody, no, there's animal no maternal a, or paternal a... instinct. There's just, you know,
2: it's whoever brings up the baby, you know, whoever looks after the offspring, right. and then you know, obviously, in many animals that all happens in a different way. But it was fascinating to find that out, and we've sort of been told that's part of us and part of our intrinsic DNA and it's not it's just not true doesn't exist so I think you know when you look at that very basically we come from that then you have it all to so try and go to work try and have a family and also you know I feel a bit guilty that I didn't say you know we we didn't talk about how difficult that was and you know and how also mm. how difficult staying at home and working at home bringing up children and not having a job outside the house is really difficult as well so you know I just I think mm. it's been it's been fascinating to look at and I really hope things are changing though from those Cosmo early Cosmo days but Cosmo did tell women about sex and that was
1: really needed and and now a conversation has been, I think, probably amplified because of COVID. Actually, because there's a generation of women, of which you are very much at the vanguard of, who've gone, hang on a minute. Um, yeah, we we weren't told about this, and all this stuff came. It was a perfect storm, wasn't there? It was COVID, and lots of women experiencing, especially women who worked in the media, experiencing these perimenopausal symptoms, then working out what they were, and this is what happened to you and is is your journey through it in your new book um which I think anybody who is at this period of life any woman before during or after will really appreciate your honesty and your candor and and it really is a a roller coaster ride through through that with four children and and I what I did was I kind of picked out bits that I think would be particularly kind of relevant for our audience today and um, you talk about the creeping sadness that happened <laughs> um which I I really recognized as somebody, as you appear to be, that was jolly and found, you know, a lot of positives in life. This came as a massive shock.
2: I think I had depression. I think that's what I had. And I had, um, it was such a surprise to feel that there was really no point in anything and to feel, you know, even darken that on some days. And I was having, um, for the first time ever, I had a panic attack on my at the front door as I was leaving for work. I just, you know, the floor started to move. I couldn't breathe. I felt this huge darkness coming towards me. And I checked within the family because I'd had other physical symptoms as if if there had been any mental illness, whether there were any issues I should know about. And there, there wasn't, and I'd never felt it before. And I went to the doctor twice to talk about why I felt so god-awful and why I was waking up. I was waking up in the night, not just with night sweats, but I was the gloom was just horrendous and I was having these terrible terrible well, I guess you'd call them night terrors where I was just it was just horrific and I was waking up screaming which was so out of character <laughs> and so so Odd, and I, I'd gone to the doctor primarily. What did you What did you put it down to? Exhaustion. I just I was writing a book. I was editing a weekly magazine. I had four children. They were getting older. I thought I was just doing so much. I, my brain had probably broken, or I had a tumor, brain tumor of some sort. Because the other thing, I was completely forgetting great big chunks of things. So I would. I got in the car one morning and I I started the car, drove off, and I couldn't work out which side of the road I, I was needing. I, I, there were no, nothing else was around and I thought, I don't know. I can't remember which side of the road I should be on. And at that point, I thought, this is really frightening mm. because it's not that you just can't remember. <laughs> it's not that you misplaced a surname or you can't remember the word for something. Mm. It's like a chunk of your brain is shut down. And I thought, well, this is dementia. This is something. And that's what but the the depression i think was the worst and i think when you don't sleep as well it just makes it it's a spiraling thing and i thought this exhaustion this tumor whatever is is making me depressed and you know i was offered antidepressants twice by uh doctors and i just it just instinctively didn't feel right to me i didn't think that would make You know, there's always a debate at the moment, isn't there, that, you know, when when women are on hormone replacement therapy, as I I am, and which kind of cured me, and I was very lucky it did, you know, we're medicalising this part of a woman's natural life. But, you know, we've always medicalised what women need. You know, you can't go through childbirth without being medicalised. But two thirds of GPs, I found out from a, a very recent survey three years ago, routinely prescribe antidepressants wrongly when they should be prescribing hormone replacement therapy and it struck me that that's medical that's we've been medicalized there's whole groups of women being medicalized through this part of their life when some of them yes they may need antidepressants they really do, they really may and it may work for them or it may move them forward but I didn't need that at the time I needed this darkness to go <laughs> this creeping sadness and it does sort of creep into your life you just can't see the point of it
1: Mm. and and you obviously you know dr louise Newsome very well you speak about her in the book and she um, would also say as any of uh, the, the the great women and men who work in this field would say it's not just uh, the symptom of the sadness and feeling low that hormone replacement therapy can help there's so many other things that we we can be helped with as women in terms of osteoporosis prevention and heart health there's so many other yeah. things and this this podcast and yours have, have looked into that um a lot so hopefully anybody listening who for the first time is thinking about it can can go and look at those resources and you talked about how at the beginning you were just getting up earlier yeah. to get all those jobs done all right I, I must I need yes. more time in the day I'll get up all right to and, list. List. <laughs> yeah, and I recognize that because so, you think I must be able to cram I actually said it to my husband last night and, and not because I've just got lots on at the moment I said I think I'm gonna have to start getting up at five
2: well it's madness. <laughs> six is yeah, not doing it's it it's <laughs> it's madness <laughs> you you write this great big list and um, we've, we have a private Facebook group with, with the people from our podcast and they a lady had put up this kind of picture of her wall of all these post-its on it of all the stuff she was forgetting and she was like us. We were getting up so early. I was getting up so early to try and get this stuff done because it was taking me longer and I couldn't remember it and I was trying to figure it all out and I think what I wanted to get across in the book is this emotional side of what women are going through because, you know, Louise Newton's book is brilliant on the practical side. And There's lots of practical books out there. But when you can't forget, when you forget which side of the road to drive on, you just think you're a moron. And you just look at, you come home and you think, I can't remember if I've fed the dog. I can't, you know, you find your keys in the fridge, you, you boil some eggs for breakfast and they're not in the pan and you think, well, have they dissolved? What's that? You, you start to think you're slowly going mad. And that really, really undermines you. And that was a bit I found a bit unforgivable with the medical profession and the kind of gaslighting that goes on. I just thought there's a hmm. whole army of us thinking slowly and being really ashamed of ourselves for going mad, for being competent and then gradually be,
1: becoming Incompetent, more than competent. I mean, you're editing national magazine, big <laughs> magazines and, and running a household, so you go from mm. high performance to feeling like simple tasks are beyond yeah, you yeah
2: and I think this shame is a terrible thing to carry around um and I just I just don't think any woman should have to deal with that for any length of time it's a really horrible feeling to have inside you we I interviewed a woman for the book who had been one of the uh, first pilots of um long haul aircrafts and she'd be one of the first female pilots and uh, she her perimenopause she couldn't Park car. She was and and when someone had asked her what what she used to do because she'd retired, she said I couldn't tell them because I think I was such an idiot because I'm so incompetent now. And, you know, and it was some, you know, what she was going through was easily cured by hormone replacement therapy. So I just, this shame, I just felt well, it's not fair for women to, to have that. And then you you feel like you're doing it on your own. You just think I'm just slowly, gradually going mad. You know, I found a cucumber in the airing cupboard and I thought, what's that doing there? How, why do I put that there? And you just think, what an idiot.
1: And yet when my teenage son put yeah, about wow. 20 quids worth of frozen prawns into the bread bin, that's fine. <laughs> um, That's fine. Um, He's got a lot on his plate, apparently. Um, And that actually brings us nicely on to you throw teenagers into the mix. Not every woman going through menopause will have teenagers at home, but you throw teenagers into the mix and you've got a whole different world of pain there because you've Got the contrast of their kind of bountifulness and them yeah. going into life well, their know, with its this charge of energy and collagen and everything else, and you know, and then also their cruelty. You, mean. <laughs> you know, they can be very, very cruel in the way uh, they, um let's say, process what's happening to you. You know, because they've seen the other version of you, and they've seen you run this house like the matriarch you are, and you know the household, and suddenly. The power shifts, doesn't it? Because they they can see things unraveling and it's kind of getting a hold of that I found getting a hold of that quickly and going to them, saying to them, right, this is what's happened. Turns out this is perimenopause. I'm going to do this about it. And, you know, and actually being really honest with them was one of the best things I think I ever did. Yeah, I
2: think you have to tell your sons and your daughters and you have to let them know what you're going through because you know, I wrote a book about parenting teens. And one of the things I learned that w- was really important is their brains are being taken apart, being flooded with hormones and put back together mm. again over a kind of 10 year period. So you've got to be really patient with them when they're building their identity, and their brains are being rebuilt. That's a lot <laughs> for them to go through. <laughs> and at the same time, your hormones, the estrogen, it's in every single part of your body, it's either fluctuating or decreasing. So you're going through a lot as well. So you've you've got to mm. share and ruptures and repairs are the kind of two, you know, repair in any kind of argument with kids or teenagers is much, much more important than what's caused the rupture in the first place. How mm. you repair mm. that, how you communicate with them. You know, I was really, really honest, you know, and they they now go all oh, menopause, schmenopause every time I, you know, lose my keys or for, forget <laughs> a phone number or something or ask them what my Netflix <laughs> password is. But yeah, they, you have, I think you have to Actually, as a whole family, particularly even with male partners as well, explain what's going on. Otherwise, mm. you do you can't keep you can't do it on your own, basically. This is not a time to do anything on your own. It's a time to be really vulnerable, to open up, to ask for help. All of the things that Gen X women particularly
1: find quite difficult, I think. Mm. And do you think that is peculiar to X yeah. women as opposed to the generation younger yeah I do actually I was nine.
2: doing you know I interviewed lots and lots of people and lots of experts for the book and younger women are are kinder to mm-hmm. themselves they are much softer in their day-to-day because of this you know I'm not saying it's everybody and you can't generalize but I think because of this have it all mindset whether you chose to work or not you you just felt you had to deliver Um, You know, and I think we were Mm. sold that, you know, in in the advertising, we were sold that we had to be thin, we had to be beautiful, we had to be sexy, we had to be successful, we had to be also, you know, we had to be the best mothers in the world, it was, you know, in the last 30 years, 25 to 30 years, this theory of attachment parenting, when you have that skin to skin time with your babies, and you're supposed to be there all the time, and you're supposed to breastfeed until they're 12, you know, that that was running alongside the have it all thing. So I think it is peculiar to this generation. Actually, I think we are wired to achieve in in whatever area we want you know we, we're working in or, or being at home in, and that's an unbearable pressure but I think with millennials and I manage loads of teams of young women and obviously had lots of younger female readers and listeners and they are kinder to themselves they give themselves space to repair themselves
1: they, they get the rest they understand the importance of mm. sleep I think. So when it all came to an end at the Sunday Times and um and that was your last kind of big job? You talk about struggling to kind of then work out who you were, how you introduce yourself even to people, and and at this point, were you managing the hormones and you were, you're were on HRT? Yes, I I so was, was, and
2: I think that was. I think if I hadn't been, I'd probably would have gone. You know, I probably would have had to go and check myself in somewhere. But I'd, I'd got out the I'd got the physical help I needed to balance the hormones, to make me feel great, to know I was protecting my future health. But what? was also going on and I think this is why I felt this was worth including And this is it's a huge change in identity in midlife you become a different person because there are a lot of what they call living losses you you do actually lose people so it's very sad when you lose people you're close to because people get ill as they get older your children leave home so my two eldest children left home at the same time um, as my job at the Sunday Times uh, editing style came to an end and my body had completely changed (laughs) as well. So you have to adapt to being a new person or a different person or an evolving person. And I was really intrigued as to why, how I was going to deal with that and what, you know, my identity was so tightly tied to my career because I've been doing it since I was 17. I just Mm -hmm. wondered what else would I be if it wasn't there. And I was very tempted at the beginning to rush straight into something else.
1: Or You talk about mm -hmm. that, filling the void almost too much, which... You can understand. That was, that was the way you'd always been. You'd been a busy person. So did you not just default into kind of how, yes. you, know, how you were before?
2: Well, I found out <laughs> about the void, which was the place I hadn't heard of before, which was a kind of really strange. So I talked to lots of therapists and lots of uh, experts in grief and lots of experts in identity and forming identity through life. And um, there is this void between act one and act two, and you can't rush through it. You, you, you can't just fill it with all the stuff you've had in your life before, you've got to really sit there and feel all those uncomfortable feelings. What would it be if you walk into a room and you're not who you were? What would it be if you, you know, are you happy in this marriage? Are you happy in this role? Are you, have you handled the end of your children living at home well? All of those thoughts and you get quite a lot of, which I hadn't read before, you get a lot of flashbacks from the past that keep coming back and you think, oh, hold on, I thought that was the brilliant decision actually maybe that wasn't a great decision. And maybe I now have to deal with the feelings around that. and Maybe I now have to deal with all those feelings that this manic activity, this distraction has moved me away from. And and also you also start to realize because you do the death mass is I've got less left than I've had. It really has to be important. I really want to enjoy it. What's going to be my purpose? Mm. Could I do something totally different? And what I learned is it's not really about reinvention I think there's this myth that there's a midlife crisis and I hate that I don't think it is a
1: midlife mm. crisis yeah it comes from I don't know if you know where it comes from it comes from a 1965 mm. scholar in Canada who was doing a study on um, a group of genius uh, genii, genius people basically and he observed that there was this questioning in the middle of their lives and I think his was a much more philosophical uh, way of explaining it and it's become this kind of I think a bit of a, a lazy trope hasn't it really for um, for people who by Buy a Ferrari and have an affair, or something, or yeah. you know. Actually, we had the comedian Zoe Lyons on. She was very funny. She bought two sports cars, and she was joking about okay. the fact that she kind of she did the classic uh, trope. But it is a crisis, though, in some ways, isn't it? Whether it's that's melodramatic, yeah. Or it's, not. it's
2: it's a it's a crisis of identity, but you need to sit and explore that rather than move fast forward into the next thing. Men mm. tend to be dissatisfied. And women, because they go through much more of the kind of physical thing, are confused (laughs) more than dissatisfied. (laughs) So there's a brilliant book called The Happiness Curve, um, which Jonathan Roush wrote. And he talks scientifically where you go, um, you dip the curve, the bottom of the curve is Mm. in in midlife. But as you come out of it, you do become, you become more spiritual. You look for more of a purpose-filled day. Things become... More important to you that are smaller, your joy in life, your awe in life, and I looked at all that research, and I looked at the Blue Zones research, which is the research of, of in the Blue Zones in the world where people live longest and are happiest, and you know all those things that we slightly take for granted our friends super super important loneliness is a massive massive killer it's really really dangerous to be lonely and not have you know you need five good four or five good friends they discovered to live through this period of, of mm. turmoil because it's a little bit of a period of turmoil mm. you know you need sleep you need to move regularly you need to find a purpose but these are all sort of small things that you can add in <laughs> and I think a lot of us mm. hit this crisis point and think well I've got to make a massive reinvention I've got to you know move mm. to the country and be a florist in australia and, you know do all these things and actually you don't you just have to sit with it and work out in your day Mm. what would make it happier and it all gradually comes together and I sort of wish I'd known that before I started sort of manically filling my time and doing hundreds of things last the first sort of two years at the end of the career I just filled my time constantly and did the same thing that I did when I was working full-time editing a book doing a podcast traveling the world for fashion shows madness wasted that time should have just stepped back you know I was very privileged I had that I had the ability to do that but you can do it and I mean I interviewed women from all kinds of backgrounds very diverse backgrounds because I really wanted to explore how it was affecting everybody living all their lives just about mm. everyone had taken that moment to look at what's actually happening to them day to day
1: really mm. do you think that's something that everybody can do or do you think it's no the preserve of people who've got a financial yes you do need because- financial security a lot yeah. of women have just got to work through
2: yeah they? but I I interviewed a woman who was a, a social worker and had gone through terrible terrible perimenopause but a lot of the changes she made in her day-to-day life around her routine and her finances were so in you know, just taking those moments for herself and it sounds so woo-woo and I was so resistant to putting it into the book because it sounds like such a flippant ridiculous thing to say you know Get up half an hour earlier, have half an hour to yourself, spend that time learning to breathe properly. Do You know, all of that moving during the day, instead of doing loads of exercise, just move gradually in the day, add a glass of water. All of those things are very tiny, but, you know, making sure you're close to your friends and that they're there for you and they're the right people or you make new friends phenomenally phenomenally important game-changingly important and I think as a generation we slightly dismiss it because we say oh my god it's this wellness stuff it's you know you can't be happy all the time but what you learn in the void is how to deal with not being happy and you you know it it might work out it might not but you learn how to deal with both sides of that I think if you sit with those feelings and make these minor changes.
1: And I think you can access your feelings and again it's this might sound right. a bit woo, but you can access your feelings in a, a more profound way because I think when you're that busy and things are kind of filling your mind it's you don't take time actually to absorb those I, like you've been through or you, you allude to the fact that people of our generation will experience loss and we have had a terrible run at the beginning of the year of people our age you know who we knew very well um dying and some quite quickly and I think that was a a big eye-opener for both Kenny and myself, actually. And um, not not because we, we thought we were going to kind of plough through life, not losing people, because we both lost people at a young age, but suddenly you look at this generation and realise, okay, this is, you know, this is what's going to happen. And how you feel that, I think, is very important anyway, in terms of, uh, you know, moving forwards with it. And, and I think perhaps when you're racing, you just don't have time, do you, to properly feel Well, you that.
2: don't have what they call regulating strategies do you You don't have coping strategies things that you know make you feel better and you know the body always tells the story in the end the mind body link is so tight and we're just beginning to get all the science around that and if you don't take time to look after you yourself you can't look after everybody else and you can't deal with all the stuff that's coming at you so it is that you know I'm not saying that we all need to be happy all the time and calm all the time we just need to have some things in our toolkit that we can do when we feel like it's spiraling out of control or we're going through a very very sad loss or some shocking news i mean in this stage of life you know that you lose count of the women who have to have lumps in their breast check you lose count of the men who've got to deal with you know with prostate cancer as a surprise diagnosis all of this is happening all the time so you just need to get some regulating things that can help you deal with all of that and manically working really fast so you don't think about it is not one of the re- good regulating things that one can do i think and i think you know you have to soften slightly in midlife and that is helpful because then you look you appear more vulnerable and people will offer to help you and i think we're not a generation that asks for help as women so learning to ask for help you know i mean i took up swimming outside because the cold seemed to make me feel a before i took hrt it seemed to make me feel a lot better And I'd feel good for two or three days after a swim in in cold water. And I learned to swim properly to do it. And I found this group of women around around the lakes and the seas who were just so, so helpful. Strangers, really, when I met them. But they've been so supportive when you know, difficult, traumatic things have happened in life. And I've learned not to judge anyone's situation. Everybody goes through this in midlife. It is inevitable. You will have these living losses and you can lose people, lose your job, you lose your kids leaving, lose your youth, you lose your fertility. All of this is a lot to deal with. And you need people around you and some strategies Mm. to help you with it. And you need to know it's coming, I think.
1: Okay, I I want to bring our guest on today and actually there's a link in a way because in your book you talk about Alex Villas who's a a coach who um, helped you when there was a lot of changes when you were at L, was that right? And so you've you've experienced some coaching. Yes,
2: I did. Uh, we were merging the digital team with the print team. And, you know, fashion magazines are fairly hierarchical, so there's quite a bit of status. <laughs> and I got rid of my office and I sat on a, we had an open plan hot desk built around the fashion cupboard. So we would have digital and print content coming out of the fashion cupboard. And I knew that moving out of my office as editor-in-chief would be tricky for people Um, so I wanted some coaching on how I could still deliver what the business needed but maybe alter my leadership style so that I could sit among um, all the staff and it wouldn't unnerve them and it wouldn't be difficult for me to get my job done and we I'd still have authority but also that we wouldn't all be working at my you know fairly manic energetic pace that would have been unfair for people so he was incredibly helpful actually on that and I actually interviewed him re-interviewed him for the book, which, and he talked a lot about the CEOs he sees now, Gen X people, who just are really not very forgiving of themselves and then suddenly realise that they have to be because, you know, it, it, it doesn't work out mm. forever.
1: <laughs> well, I feel like I'm hearing more and more people using business coaches and life coaches and it feels like something that we're more receptive to than say we would have been 20, 30 years ago. Um, And obviously coming from the background of sport, I find all the ex-sports people I work with now in telly are so coachable. You know, if they ask for advice, they want to know what, you know, how to get better and how to perform better. So it's interesting to me kind of how people come to coaching and where they come to it from. So we're going to bring in Ed Haddon, who is a former GB rower and now has uh, Uh, turned his life into coaching in business. He's written a book called The Modern Maverick after he did a master's in experimental psychology from Oxford University. And the book's catch line is why writing your own rules is better for you, your work and your world. So hopefully Ed can explain to us what that means exactly. Hello, Ed. Thank you so much for coming on The Midpoint.
4: Gabby, thank you so much for uh, having me on the show, and it's lovely. What a lovely conversation to listen to. I was writing down a list of things to link to, and I ran out about after about twenty. Oh, good, <laughs> good, good. Well, tell me, tell me
1: what you heard then that piqued your interest.
4: I think this really. I mean, this we, we can talk a bit about coaching and how that can help in a minute. But this, the, the words that really sprung out for me is the, this word of should. So I should be doing this, and I should be doing that. And what's my identity, and how do I need to shape my identity to what the world thinks I should be doing? And I think that that is what a lot of people carry around with them. And this idea that we're living a life that maybe isn't ours, that we're kind of almost renting from someone else. And I should be doing this and I should be doing that. And I think a lot of coaching conversations really examine that and really help people pull that idea apart. What do you really want to be doing? What are you on this world to do, I guess, rather than what should you be doing? So it was a lovely conversation to listen to. Thank yeah, you. Well,
1: tell me how you would, when you somebody comes to you and they say they want some help, how you would guide them to find the thing that they should be doing that no they shouldn't they shouldn't say they should be doing something what's what's the word they should use then
4: (laughs) yeah i think what they what they really want they they really want to be doing i mean yeah we talk a lot um there's a book by david brooks that i i recommend a lot called the second mountain and it's idea that we spend the first part of our careers climbing this this first mountain i think you've both talked about a lot today of um, very career centric and filling the void, as as Lorraine talked about. And you get to the top of the mountain, and sometimes it's not quite what you thought it was going to be. You may have achieved everything you set out to achieve, but there's a sense of sometimes a feeling of emptiness or a, a, this creeping sadness, as as Lorraine talked about. Mm-hmm. And then you enter this valley, and you think, well, what am I going to do now? You know, what what does the what does the second mountain look like? And a lot of my clients. Try and climb the first mountain again, and try and repeat the same the same process. But I think the work that that we do together is saying, well, actually, what is your own definition of success? We hear a lot in society about what success looks like you know, money, power, fame, likes, whatever it is. But what is your own real definition? What does success really mean to you? And we we talk about a broader definition, a definition that doesn't just perhaps include a career that includes a family, how you are at home, how you are as a friend, how you are in your community, and try and create a a really personal version of, look, what does, if we look forward in five or 10 years, what would a really good life look like to me and the people that are important to me? And, And this idea of moving from maybe being a passenger in one's life, a passenger in one's life where you're filling a void that you might not be aware of what it is, to really saying, well, look, I'd like to be a pilot. I'd like to really work out what I want to do what I'm kind of uniquely good at and also most importantly the book talks about what is then in in the service of others Mm -hmm. right it's not just self-help for myself it's it's self-help so that I can help others because we know that kind of sits at the core of 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 happiness and fulfillment and a a life well lived. So
1: there that is the world in writing your own rules is it better for you your work and the world?
4: Yeah exactly And, and I think Lorraine talked really well about look without looking after yourself there's there's no there's no hope of helping others or helping your children or being a great ceo at work and it's this idea of putting self first but so you can be of service to to others so if you if you're clear on what you want to do what you enjoy doing uh, you know and what the world needs you you, you are a different more positive mm. person with more to give the, 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 your family really mm. benefits you know we all know those times when we're away from our families a lot or we come back and we're not really present. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we come back, we're not you know, we're on our phones or we're thinking about work. So this idea of you, you know, for you to be clear and in balance about what you want to do, your family benefit, but also the, the world, as you say, as a, as a larger, whether it's your people at work, whether it's your direct teams or whether it's the people you come into contact with. Everyone benefits from this idea of you living your best life, your life on, on the purpose of your what you're here to do. And it's this kind of ripple effect. But it does start with the work that you've been talking about today about, well, look, what what is right for me, not what should I be doing for, for others? If that and, makes
1: and what sense. we were talking about specifically was this period of life, very specifically in women's lives, when the, you know, when they're perimenopausal, and menopausal, and there's the physical as well as the emotional and the mental uh, kind of barrage to deal with. You obviously have clients from a wide range of, of ages and you know different different positions in in their lives different stages of their lives what why do people kind of come to you in the first place or are they all kind of late 40s early 50s the kinds of people you you're dealing with
4: yeah it's a, it's a good question we we tend to s- see people at these quite key stages there are there are a group of sort of early 20s so first what do I do with my life and we we tend to refer those on to, to other coaches we work with we tend to pick people up sort of mid-30s, mid-40s, mid-50s. Those are the kind of the key, you know, and of course there's variants in there. But there are these periods in, in life where maybe it's young children, kind of teenagers or or children, as you say, empty nesting, that, that these these cause big changes in our identity, our sense of who, who needs us now. But we, we do, you're right, we do a lot of work in this kind of midlife, this midpoint <laughs> stage, which your, your brilliant podcast is about, because it is that softening as, as Lorraine really put really well of actually what really matters mm. now. You know, I'm, as you say, we're losing friends. We're being confronted by death. I'm, I've done, I've had, we work a lot with entrepreneurs who've had their own businesses and have had success there, but they've given a lot, you know, that it's a very binary thing being an entrepreneur and a founder and having your own business. And, and we talk about this idea that this, how do we broaden an idea of success and how do we recognize some successes that you may not, Give value to you know having a brilliant family or having a brilliant relationship, a brilliant, a sort of sanctuary in a safe place at home where children are growing up in in a, in a good place, and so that's the work really about recognizing maybe some things that you're doing well that you didn't realize you were, and actually looking at what do you want to change that perhaps you know, you, you you're not so happy with.
1: And I wonder, Lorraine, bringing you into this as well, if you know this is really important that people recognize all of these things at these stage of their lives. But what we'd I suppose hope for in the future is that people are growing through their 20s and 30s and having families and, and realising that. And they, while they're going to deal with the physical manifestation of midlife, whatever that looks like, that they get there and they've they've got that other stuff sorted. Yeah. So it doesn't have to come all at once, you know? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think advance notice of anything any big change, because, you know, change is what we're dealing with all the time, and and advanced notice of that is really helpful. I started doing something which was so out of character, and I just said, ridiculous, I'm not going to do that. Journaling. Which brought me, it's the maddest thing, but I thought I'll do it because I am a writer. Started as a writer, I am a writer. It kind of makes sense for me to do it, but I won't call it journaling. I'll just write down stuff I'm thinking about. One one of the things that kept coming up again and again, and it came up in the research, and it came up as I started this journaling, is this gratitude, this idea of gratitude. So you become ever more grateful for being here as you get older, because it's a privilege to get old, you know, because the alternative is terrible. So getting older, you start to see gratitude, in your day and it started to appear in lots of surveys and science that I was reading around getting older and longevity that idea a sense of maybe getting that earlier on I think would make this bit a lot easier (laughs) you know you can have the worst day and you know be at someone's hospital bed and, and all of that but still feel joy that it's sunny when you walk home and it sounds so ridiculous and just writing it down made me feel so silly as as I guess a Gen X woman we just don't are not into that woo woo stuff but it's over the year that I've been doing it, it has gradually built and built and I think it's a real mainstay of keeping me stabilized it's one of those regulatory strategies and if we could get young people doing it it would be great
1: yeah I totally agree I put something on my social media about gratitude a few weeks ago and enormous response from people who similarly had started really consciously being grateful for things and realizing that, that sometimes it is tiny, tiny things that, you know, And this sounds ridiculous, but I I got um, given a puppy for my 50th birthday last week and I didn't know I needed a puppy and I didn't know I was getting a puppy. And um, of course, I'm, I'm at home today and I've been writing and I had to keep taking the puppy out for a wee, And just noticing how green the grass was and how lovely, you know, how the smell of fresh, freshly cut grass. And I really had this moment of kind of being grateful for that and having some grass that I've got some, <laughs> that's a quote that's going to get token out, isn't it? I've got my own grass, but that was kind of a moment. And I thought, yeah, that these are coming more frequently and every day there's something that seems tiny. and is that something that you have worked on with your clients and, and you notice that there needs to be an increase of?
4: Yeah, I think I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to sort of pick that word "woo-woo" up that you almost put in inverted commas and sort of call, just call it out a bit because that that is now a, a whole field of psychology <laughs> called positive psychology. So when I read when I read psychology, it was about uh, helping the mentally unwell sort of assimilate in society. Now, yeah. you know, Martin Seligman in the '90s said, "Well, hang on, what about helping well people really flourish?" Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, gratitude journaling—they're they're brilliant. They're now scientifically yeah. underpinned ways of helping boost your happiness increase resilience and 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 so you're so you're ready for some of that to manage some of the the downs that we inevitably inevitably get and i I would add you know to to sort of journaling and gratitude i'd add exercise and that that you know lots of people know about but that that and cold showers as you say that endorphin hit you know that can last for for days um it really works so the first half of the book is really about look what do i really want to do how do i take control of my life how do i become that that sort of pilot in my life The second half is deeply practical. So it's about, look, let's get some of these practical underpinnings. It's a bit like, let's get our batteries fully charged here. So let's think about exercise and what we're eating. Let's think about journaling. Let's think about some of these these habits in a way that we can build in cold water swimming. They're not all going to be for you, but try them. And if you can assemble your own little bespoke kind of toolkit, if you like, and, and build a habit around that, that makes a massive difference, both in trying to make positive changes but also riding some of those inevitable storms that we, we encounter. And
1: before I, I let you go, Ed, um, can you tell us how you went from GB rower to studying experimental psychology?
4: Well, I was doing the two at the same time, which was, which was quite challenging. So I was, I was rowing while I was at, at university. But then I think the rowing was part of this sort of ambition and idea, desire to sort of succeed in a, in a sort of certain way. That was my first mountain, if you like. And I went on to do a number of jobs that I wasn't suited for. Um, It was a bit like Adrian, I was listening to your talk with Adrian where he said, look, when I got offered the job by ITV, ITV, it was too good to refuse. Mm -hmm. And I think I went through, I see a lot of clients who've been reactive in their Mm. careers, who get an offer and they go I'll take that that sounds great or and then and then suddenly 20 30 years in they're like oh how did I end up as a management consultant I get to here (laughs) yeah Yeah, I was that that was my first job (laughs) bingo (laughs) so it was a great it was a great grounding but it wasn't it wasn't me and it wasn't right for me so I, I think the earliest you can sit with someone the coach is there to ask you really difficult questions that we don't ask ourselves we think we will but we we don't So the the earliest you can sit with someone and and actually create a bit of a plan. It's not going to go straight to plan, but it's a clear idea of, look, here's what I really love to do. Here's what I'm really good at. Here's where I think I can have an impact. And here's, here's why I'm doing it rather than this kind of reactive. Oh, I'll just jump there and then I'll go there and then I'll go here. So I had an early crisis, if you like, in my mid 30s, which was now I see a bit of a blessing. Found a coach, talked to him on the phone for six sessions. That was it totally changed my life and that's when I thought gosh I've got to I've got to train to do this and I've it's because it's not therapy and you know therapy I, I've done a lot of therapy that has a great place in in people's lives but coaching sits somewhere else it's it's much more forward looking it could be more positive it's more accessible and I think the book I really wanted to make the whole thing accessible because not everyone can sit one to one with a coach.
1: And it sounds like what you're saying as well. I think of coaching what I experienced in sport as somebody almost telling you what to do. But it sounds like your coaching is letting people come come up with the answers themselves, almost that you're you're guiding them and the answers are already within.
4: Yeah, absolutely, Gavin. I mean, you know, you're absolutely right. From sport, you want someone to say, "Look, to change that, do that, do this," and. So you understand the power of coaching, but life coaching or business coaching, as, as Lorraine will have experienced with Alex, is is very different in the sense, really what you're there to do is ask really good, difficult, challenging questions and be a support alongside as, as the client explores that.
1: Thank you so much for your time today, Ed, and best of luck with the book, uh, The Modern Maverick. We will hopefully uh, see you again sometime soon on The Midpoint.
4: I'd love that. Thanks Take very care. much.
1: I think you know you're somebody who you can pick the phone up and pretty much speak to anybody you want to speak to because of your your job that you've you've had you've got massive you must have a huge contacts book. But actually, you know, in in life not everybody has those, you know, those avenues, do they, to 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 get to people. And I think the emergence of of this, uh, you know, you you and I are both a bit nervous I think about going, oh it's a bit, bit woo woo, but actually, Ed kind of told us they're straight, didn't he? That there is a, a part of psychology that is really important. It's not just about treating people when things are going wrong. It's about helping people when things are just, you know, not going quite as well as they would like. And and whether that's a coach or you pick up a book and it might be your book, it might be Ed's book. I think these resources and tools are really helpful for people.
2: Yeah, I think it's exactly what's needed for, the, for this time and for this moment, isn't it? Particularly, I think for women podcasts are particularly good because they can listen to them privately and do it on their walks and fit it into their day on their you know kind of commute that information is now out there and you know I can ring people up as a journalist I mean you 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 know we can just say we're doing a piece on this we want to know more so we've got to share that information. and um, We've got to make sure that it's there on, on social media and you curate your feed so that you get that kind of detail that you need around this particular point. And I'm just so glad the conversation is being had because we have heard on the podcast and I have heard personally such appallingly sad stories of women, you know, who are suicidal and, you know, women who have tried to take, who've written their notes because they've just been ambushed by something which can be helped, you know, whether you can take HRT or not, there are strategies and there is loads of knowledge out there. It just feels that this, we've really got to get that information out now so that people don't feel alone and also husbands and, and partners of, of women going through something that they've never heard of that they don't know anything about employers t- tackling huge chunks of the workforce leaving because they don't know what how to help or how to support so I think it's just that information is there and I think even the woo woo bits which I shan't use that word anymore thank you very much Ed <laughs> even those bits are really really useful because it's all rooted in positive psychology which is rooted in make you know the mind body link making you feel better and I don't think that's a privileged middle class thing to be talking about I think that is relevant in every you know I do a lot of work mentoring teenagers and um, young women as well and I do a lot of work with mental health experts and I volunteered for a helpline which helps uh, young people as well so everywhere these strategies are very much part of the message Mm. we are getting out so they are effective for everybody from every background.
1: One of the reasons why I, I said yes to go on the um, Freeze the Fear program with Wim Hof was because the two central tenants to that were cold water and breathing, and they're both free. You know, You can have a cold shower and you can learn how to breathe properly. And it wasn't a show that was telling people to go and spend thousands, you know, on a retreat somewhere or to go and do which is great if you can do that or, you know, go off to some kind of silent retreat in South America or something, as I heard somebody did for a month, a whole month of not speaking. It wouldn't be very good for the podcast. Um, so it had to be accessible and it had to be something that people can yeah. can adopt quite easily well, It was a into huge journey lives.
2: for you. I mean, I mean watching you doing the breathing was so extraordinary and i remember feeling some of those things when i've been having learning to breathe for the for the getting in very very cold you know i've gone down to naught degrees at the leader but it's watching what you went through just made me think you know this is so important that this is accessible to everybody
1: can we talk a little bit about mental sharpness and um, how you feel now about accessing you know those those parts of your brain that felt like they were shutting down when you were in those perimenopausal darker days do you feel like you've got that back that um or do you, do you want to get that back did you want to be back to that person that you felt you were before? Oh, i
2: wanted to be able to remember things and i wanted to be able to <laughs> get stuff done so that i could lead a kind of fairly calm life with a you know a house of uh four kids but What I didn't want and don't ever want back again is the relentlessness of having to remember a million different things and be in a million different places and do it all at the same time and achieve each and each of those places. And to, you know, I I wanted to stop, you know, leaning into things and I wanted to set boundaries where I could say, you know what, no and no is enough. I don't even need to explain myself. I'm not going to do that because... I don't want to. <laughs> and I it will make me feel very, I, I deal with stress in a very, very different way. Now I'm older and I look back and recognize that a lot of what I dealt with was extreme, extreme stress situations. When you're in that manic situation, you just keep going and it's learnt behavior. You just push through and you move to the next thing, to the next thing. And I, you're maybe not your best self around other people. And it's, it's really not good for the body. And I look back and I don't ever want to be in that place again. And I want to be able to have moments between things, even if it's, you know, just an evening between something. And that's what you get. So the upside of this midlife point, and you know, we often feel as if I'm just saying what a negative place is, the upside is you are so much more confident, you know who you are, you've got all inside you, you start, you can start to access it. I've sort of started in my mid fifties, you feel positive every day. And when stuff goes belly up then you can deal with it and it's not the worst thing in the world and it doesn't matter if you fail you might fail and it doesn't matter if you don't get it all done as long as you have the people around you you love and you're you're good with them and you've looked after yourself i think that's the important thing i've really started to say no to loads of things that i would normally have said yes to mm.
1: yeah and as you say i think i've started to say no the next bit i've got to learn from you is i don't feel like i have to give a paragraph of reasons why no, i just I say <laughs>
2: Will you be able
1: to do that no <laughs> I think you know. I do to my my agent, I'll say to her, no because I'm out two nights after that, yeah. or you know i'm sorry i can't I can't go to that event because I've got you know I've got something the following night, and I'm not doing four nights out on the bounce that's I not got happening. um asked Whereas... to go
2: on Newsnight recently, and I thought, oh, what a great opportunity that'd be brilliant. I've got a book out, and then I thought, do you know what, the last time I went on Newsnight, I think I was nearly sick in the waistband. I was so nervous and so distressed, and I thought, do you know, I'll just say no." because it will be terrible and it will be awful and I I won't come across brilliantly because I will get stressed I will forget everything and I I just I don't you know I didn't go to uni and I didn't you know I always have that slight worry that I'm not quite smart enough for places and and I used to just say yes to all those things to prove the point to myself and I just thought I'm going to say
1: no because that will be too stressful thing. For me to do <laughs> and you've done it you've done it before you don't have to do it before. again um, and, uh, and you look great Lorraine and you know your skin's <laughs> shiny you. and your hair's oh, your food. hair's <laughs> shiny sorry your skin's glowing get it the right way around yeah <laughs> um are you um are you talk a little bit about food and your relationship you know kind of you talk a bit about alcohol as well in there and kind of how that has an effect on you are you now a place uh, where you're kind of eating very mindfully and you have you have a good relationship with the foods that are good for you
2: yeah I think so I mean I'm I'm a terrible cook and I think as a generation we probably all have a slightly odd disordered attitude to eating and and, you know we've often seen it as calories and we've often seen that you know we've grown up through the cabbage soup diet and Bridget Jones diary where she recorded her weight and we found that funny I mean I look back now and think that wasn't funny that's not you know that, that's psychologically so wrong and I think all of that plays into our attitudes towards food and I've been very careful not to pass that on to my I've got three daughters and a son pass that on I hope um, but you know I'm pretty healthy now because it's almost immediate if I eat unhealthy food then I feel terrible the next day if I drink too much I feel terrible the next day you know I mean I'm obviously I, I love chocolate and I love a hobnob but I try not to worry about it and one of the points I made in the book is I, I think you were a period also is probably the least important thing about you at this stage I I tested Botox for a a piece I was writing for a paper and I was kind of liked it for the first sort of two days and then I just was it didn't really bother me after that I thought this you know the thing is once you start that and and if that's how you choose to do it absolutely fine and make no judgment on it but once you start that then you start worrying about other things and you know and I think it's you know it's it's up to everybody individually but it is that you learn as well from cold water swimming because you are around so many people who are almost always naked trying to get really warm really quickly (laughs) fearful of getting hypothermia that it isn't really important that it isn't really intrinsic to who you you are um, and you just
1: get used to the change I think you start to value your health so much more than you do any aesthetic kind of appeal almost you think well I'm here and I can move and I can function and my body's still letting me play sport whether it's you know go for the gym or play tennis or go for a run it's still letting me do all those those things. role models are ahead of us now
2: aren't they there are some brilliant role models and i just don't mm. think they were there before you can either do it the j-lo way which is great for you great for her that's her actual job or you can do it in the way the lady down the road decides it's meaningless to her and she can wear what she wants and and do you know but we haven't ever seen older women ahead of us being fit you know taking up weight lifting at 60 and all we it's just not been around us and Or if it has, it's been, Mm. you know, for her age has always been added afterwards. And I think that's (laughs) now beginning to stop happening because I think we're realizing that we're valued in many different ways and that, you know, I'm the fittest and healthiest I have ever been at 54. So I kind of think that's a bonus because it's a privilege to still be here, you know.
1: Yeah, I think that should be the title of um, your next book, For Her Age. I know, it's
2: just I find that so, <laughs> that does make me quite cross. I mean, we didn't mention the rage that comes in. You know, women get this terrible rage, which is part of the perimenopause. But once you've sorted that out, you can still access the rage. <laughs> and I yeah. use it. Well, Catelyn Moran talks about that, <laughs>
1: doesn't she? how yeah. important that you can use that rage very positively exactly. and we know so many women of our generation who are using it in lots of different ways to you know take on causes and fight fights that they feel are really important so it's a very good use it of is. the rage. Uh, Lorraine I hope the book does really well it's a great read so thank you so much for sharing so much of you in it and helping other people.
2: And um, thank you for having me on and for consistently banging the drum about women getting this information which you've been doing as well so thank you.
1: Lorraine really is such a wonderful person to talk to about all the shades of midlife and I admire all the work she's doing to raise awareness and eradicate feelings of shame for women when they experience changes in their minds and bodies. Her new book, What's Wrong With Me? 101 Things Midlife Women Need to Know is a cracking read, whatever gender you are, because as she says, you can't go through this stuff alone. Families need to know what's going on. Big thanks to Ed Haddon as well for his thoughts on positive psychology and how it's never too early or too late to sit down and evaluate your definition of success. And I love reading all your thoughts on what we should cover on the podcast. So please join our Facebook page, The Midpointers, or you can DM me on Instagram at Gabby Logan. And a special thanks to Spiritland Productions for putting this together. I hope you can join me next time. Bye-bye for now.